If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 5. I'll start with verse 18 and then skip over to verse 21 and, and read all the way down to 33. <clears throat> Before I do that, uh, I did fail to mention as well, uh, just in the, the rush this morning, some of you, we announced this last week, but some of you all might notice there's something different over here. And um, there used to be chairs there, and we've, we've gotten those out of the way, primarily because this is a big dead zone, and we um, hear a lot of complaints about not being able to hear over there, and so we took your complaints to heart, and we got rid of that section. So, um, but you are still free to grab a chair and sit there if you so choose, um, but that's one of the reasons that's gone, and just in case you were like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, that's what that's about. Okay, enough about that. Let's get into uh, Ephesians and pick back up where we left off last week. I'll begin in chapter 18, or <laughs> chapter 5, verse 18. And just a reminder for the flow here, um, everything that Paul moves into, into this section with wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, this is contextualization for the understanding of what this term submission is to look like played out in these specific roles. Um, and what's most important is it's rooted in verse 18, which this is something that comes out, and, and by this, this, the idea of submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, it comes out as a fruit of being filled with the Spirit, which is just to say, for those who are united to Christ by faith, His Spirit is in you, and as a Christian, this comes out of you. And what is this? It's this practice of submission. And um, as we read this, we will move into the, con the context of wives and husbands. So let's do that now. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. But be filled with the Spirit, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and this time. We pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears. That we would be able to see and hear things otherwise we could not. I pray that you would 
do a work in our life. And as we think about how seed goes into good soil and produces a fruit, we pray the same as your word goes out that would enter our hearts by the work of your spirit. It would create a fruit in us, that is, that it would change us. For your glory alone we pray, amen. Well, my senior year in high school, I tried out for the fall play and I got a part. Um, I enjoyed it so much. I tried out for the spring play, saying goodbye to 12 consecutive years of playing baseball. Um, my parents were relieved. Um, but there's something unique. If you've been in theater or you've uh, you know, been um, on the stage, um, that's not what I want to say really, but if you've been in theater or even if you just watched it, um, there's something unique about seeing this, and it's, it, it's a live event, of course, that has all of these parts, that has all of these roles, continuing to tell a story much larger than itself. The performance becomes, you might say, something bigger than the sum of the parts of the roles involved. Now, when you are in the play, there's an interesting dynamic that takes place among each player. Everyone is focused on their own roles and trust that the other player, what? That they're working on their roles and why? So that when it comes time to go to the stage, there's almost a rhythm, right? Of this sort of back and forth between the roles and the more that the players trust the others in their scene, the more confident they actually become, the more these potentials in the scene are unlocked. And it's what many call the magic of the theater. Ultimately, though, the success of the cast is not on an individual performance basis, but on how well what the larger story is told. I never went home after a performance thinking, well, I don't really know if any of that made sense to the audience, but I nailed my part. Rather, listening to the director's feedback as to whether the story as a whole was convincing and then taking our own individual feedback to work on our roles for the next performance, trusting that if we do these things, what the rest will take care of itself. Well, as we said last week, Paul talks about three things that, that come out of us from being filled with the Spirit. We are people who have full hearts that sing. We are people who have full hearts that give thanks and we are people who, with full hearts, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And as I said in the intro, he now moves in to contextualize what it means in specific relationships. And this morning, as you noted, we're going to look at what it means for this to be played out within the marriage. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives. And what Paul does is he actually likens husbands and wives to assuming roles in a play. Roles that each displays towards the other and before the watching world, that when each is playing their part, displays something, what, much bigger than themselves. And what is that? What is the drama, if you will, that is on display in this way? It is Christ and his church. It is Christ and his church, and just like the theater, wives and husbands are to be concerned with their own roles, trusting that the other will play their part as well. When that happens, almost like the theater, there's a rhythm, 
There's a natural back and forth of deeper trust and deeper expression of love towards the other and the unique ways that God has gifted them to display it. Such that even when lost in each other's eyes or even at times when they can't even look at each other's eyes, something much bigger than themselves is being displayed. Not perfectly, but something much bigger is being displayed. And that's the story of the love of Christ and his church Now, why do I start here? It is helpful for us to begin with and remember the big picture as we get into the details here. Um, In fact, I would argue that the details themselves are actually very confusing. And without the big picture can actually be distorted when we try to understand them and probably more importantly, apply them to our lives. And so I'm always going to appeal back to last week where I said, with mutual submission among Christians out of reverence for Christ, if you are doing something or asked to do something or feel pressured to do something that, that in the way of submitting to your brothers and sisters out of reverence for Christ, that is not Christ-like, that is not something he's asked you to do or goes against something he's asked you to do, then that is not what the Bible is talking about as it pertains to submission. And, and we can back up and ask the question, okay, what is, what is wrong here? As we get into the context of husbands and wives, the same thing is going to be true. If what husbands and wives are not doing, or let me put it this way, if what husbands and wives are doing is not reflecting the beauties and the wonders of Christ and his church, primarily the sacrificial love that Christ has for his church and the way that the church willingly and naturally folds itself under its governing and responsibility, his governing care, then we're not doing something right. It will be our guide as we test this and as we look at this, and we will not get to all of it, and I have way too much information this morning, but I love this passage. You know, I think this is my favorite passage in Ephesians. Those who are laughing know why. But I can't stress this enough before we, we move into this. This will be what we will constantly come back and look at. Is, is, is the application, is the expression that you think this, is, that this plays, right? Even, even if you have questions about it, is it doing justice to the main theme, to the drama of the love of Christ and that he has for his church? If it's not, then we need to back up and we need to reevaluate our roles. We need to reevaluate what this text is about so that we can, as Christ calls us to, Put on display for the watching world, for those who are married, for sure, this drama. Okay, two things, what the wife is called to and then what the husband is called to. And that, that'll, that'll be way, way too much for us to get to. But that's where we're going to start. So if you're looking at points, what the wife is called to and what the husband is called to, and we'll, we'll see how far we go. So let's look at what, what the first one, what the wife is called to. Again, contextualization of what it looks like for submission to be played out in the context of the marriage because both are what? Filled with the Spirit. So first we see this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Initially, there is nothing really surprising to Paul's audience about, about hearing this and about him saying, wives, submit to your husbands, right? If we think about that first audience, uh, those Ephesian Christians hearing this, this wouldn't be too much of a surprise. 
what was assumed in this culture is that that would be the practice of wives and women especially. What's not assumed, what's not expected is how wives are to do this, which is how they are to think about their role, right? And how are wives to submit to their husbands? How are they to think about this as Christ submits to the church? Or sorry, as the church submits to Christ. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, that's how. And how is that? Well, first we see the church submits or yields as it comes under the authority or responsibility of Christ. Listen as I go back to Ephesians 1.22. Okay, this is back in the first chapter. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Paul starts talking, what is the immeasurable greatness of God, of his, God's power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, uh, giving him power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Then verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here, Christ is the head of the church, which means and implies an authority that is given to him. But our question should be at this point, what is the nature of this authority? In other words, does the church just submit to Christ because the Bible says so? Likewise, do wives, are they just supposed to submit to their husbands because the Bible says so? And I would argue no. The nature of Christ's authority as Paul has been laying out throughout the entire book is redemptive. It is redemptive. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. In other words, the reason the church is under Christ's authority is because he has what redeemed her or taken responsibility for her at cost to himself. Let's think about the church for a minute here. Redemptive authority assumes previous care and love. Let me say that again. Redemptive authority assumes previous care and love. It is as if the church is this sort of unwanted, marginalized, abused even, abandoned and forgotten woman that no one wants, which is actually how the Bible depicts her. But it's worse than that. She's a slave that nobody wants. She's addicted to her sin. But Christ comes along and he purchases her. Right? It's, it's the most beautiful like, interaction that we can even think of in Scripture where we look at this and, and Christ says, I'll take her. But not with money, gold, or silver. What? He buys her with his own blood the beauty of the gospel, right? Whatever she costs, that's what he gives. Thus, in redeeming her, she now what comes under his authority, under his headship, as the text writes, as being in his family. And this headship implies what? Protection and responsibility. Now, at no time in the book of Ephesians have any of us question coming under Christ's authority, protection, and responsibility as Christians. Doesn't mean we don't have questions about it, 
But when we talk about the beauties of the gospel, it is something we are drawn to. And, and why is that? Well, because we see what our Savior has done. He has given himself for us. That's the redemptive nature of it. So coming back to Christ's headship authority, this being redemptive authority, the Savior of the church, Christ takes responsibility for the care and provision of his church. What this means is, is what the church lacks, he provides. When judgment comes upon the church for her sins and misdeeds, he provides atonement. In the context of redemption, the headship then that the church submits to is Christ's willingness to take responsibility for all that the church might need, but also all that is required of the church as well. One more thing, don't make the jump yet to wives. One of the best understandings of headship in Scripture, I'll go back to Genesis 3. And I labor here because I know this is a, a clunky, somewhat uncomfortable phrase in some of our culture. But I'll go back to Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? This is just after Adam and Eve. This is just after Eve has taken the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and God is now looking for them in the garden. Eve took the fruit and shared some with her husband. And what happens in this text, if you're familiar with the story? What happens after Eve eats the fruit? And what do Western minds expect? Well, Western minds heaped in individualism expect God to go to Eve, who started all this, did this. But is that what the text says? Who does God go looking for? And who does he call out for? Calls out for Adam. Don't miss that in the text. He calls out for Adam, and why? Because Adam is the responsible party as the created head, the representative of the family. They are equal in value as the Imago Dei, as we just went through last week and looked at. Right? But their roles are different here. As the head, Adam is to use then this authority redemptively. No matter what happens, he might... In other words, what that means is he makes right what wrongs transpire under God's law. But you say, Eve did it, right? Doesn't matter. Though Adam was right there and partook as well, it doesn't matter. He is responsible according to Genesis 3. God comes looking for him first, and Adam is to use his authority redemptively, meaning he is to make right all wrongs. In fact, Dr. Michael Morales in his book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, makes the case that Adam should have offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of Eve in that moment and his own sins, which is actually the argument why he can't atone because he is guilty as well. But in God's grace... He ushers them out of the garden, and he what? He plans, his, for his, he plans for his second Adam to come and do what this one could not do. The point is, responsibility must land somewhere, redemptively speaking. And that role of responsibility is what we call headship in the family and in the church. That role is assumed, and it is given to husbands according, according to verse 23. And while there is more that we could say about the nature of headship, the headship that the wife submits to is one that what? Models Christ. And we'll see this in a moment. But playing the role of the church, her submission is one that is understood in the context of redemption, which is just to say she comes under that authority willingly. 
The same way that all of us come under Christ's authority willingly at his church. Why? Because it's so beautiful. She is happy to do it. She's happy to rest in its arms because she knows the arms that hold her are not arms to abuse her, but are arms that love her. To build her up the way that Christ does the church. This is what the wife is called to. A couple of things before we move on. There are continuities and there are discontinuities throughout the husband-wife Christ church relationship here. And one of those is, is, is in the posture of the wife and her submission towards her husband that I need us to be clear about before we move on. See, unlike the church that naturally and willingly gives itself under Christ's care and authority because what, he has demonstrated his love for her and dying for her, wives are treated differently in this text. Because, well, one, husbands haven't sacrificed themselves for their wives redemptively. But two, nor are they called to do that, husbands that is. See, for the record, the husbands are not the savior of their wife. That needs to be said. The husbands, that is a discontinuity of the metaphor. The husbands are not the savior of their wives. But while submission to their husband is the role of the spouse, that submission then is never, ever forced. Look at the summary statement in verse 36. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It changes there, doesn't it? It's no longer submit, but it's respect. The word for respect here is fear or phobitai. Just like verse 21 when it says Christians should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But unlike 21, phobitai in verse 33 is in the middle voice. Why is that important? Well, it's not active. It's not in the active voice. We're in the passive voice. If it was in the passive voice, it would be saying she is, she, she is forced to submission. If it were in the active voice, it would be as if she is to go looking in every single station and situation in life to find out where she's to submit. And that doesn't make sense with what Paul is saying, but he puts it in the middle. Why the middle? Because the middle gives her agency. It is as if she's supposed to choose this because it's beautiful when her husband is loving her sacrificially. That's the posture. As Bach continues to know, this, is, this, this should be the wife's free choice, the willingness to come under this authority or headship because of the way that it, that it is loving her unconditionally, as we'll see in a second. But it is also not an endorsement of patriarchy for the record. And if we come back to the big picture, and this is where this helps us, right? What good is a church that God forces to submit to him? How attractive is a picture of Jesus forcing this church to love him to the watching world? Think about it like that. Not attractive. Nobody's dying for that. Doesn't Jesus want a church that desires willingly and freely to submit to him? And I would say, yes, he does. It's called obedience. 
And when we hear the gospel of what Christ has done, what, what do we do? We naturally give ourselves over to him. As this church, the middle voice, friends, says it is not forced, nor is it something that you are to be looking for in every way, right? Nor, nor is this, and I need to say that it's not transactional either. Let's get that out of our systems. The wife is not to look at the husband and say, well, he is not loving me sacrificially, so I'm not going to submit. Nor, as we'll see in a second, the husband is not to look at the wife and say, she is not submitting to me. I am not going to love her sacrificially. That's transaction. That's transaction. That is not what's in view here. It's almost as if this type of submission in her role comes naturally when what? Cued by the role of another. And that would be her husband, which we are to get to next. There's so much more to be said here, but I think we can build off of this. I think we can, we can begin to apply this in the ways that we need to apply it when we recognize and see it in the context of the big picture. And so if there's anything going on in this congregation, especially with wives or their husbands, where you are feeling forced to do something that you don't think you should be doing, out of submission to your husband, you need to come tell an officer. You need to come tell me. If you're, if, if you're engaging in something that does not display the beauties of Christ and his church, then let's talk about that. Because here's the, here's, here's the problem we're not thinking about. I'm also concerned with your marriage, but I'm just as concerned in what non-Christians are seeing in your relationship, which is what Paul has in view here. One of the best ways that we are to communicate the beauties and the wonders of the gospel is the way we live it out with one another. So let's not stifle that. And if that's enough to get you to come talk to us about it, let's do that. But, but let me just be clear and present that th this is not a you do what I say because I'm the man. And if that has been your experience, I, 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 I am sorry that that is your experience but please see that it is not the intention of the text. It is calling women, and it is, call, it is calling wives, it is calling husbands to something much, much bigger than that. And the reality is we actually see it in its full when we get to the bulk of the text, which is actually directed towards the husbands, which we turn to now. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The love here is agape, and it is in the present imperative, which means a couple of things for us this morning. First, it is a form of love that is unconditional. Husbands, unconditionally love your wife. And this word would be extremely unique in Paul's day regarding this relationship. It is self-giving love. As what? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But second, being present imperative means that this is constant responsibility. So husbands, take notes. Future husbands, take notes. Constant responsibility. And most notably, not conditioned on the wife's response to submit to him. In other words, the husband is to love sacrificially regardless of whether his wife submits to him or not. This, friends, is where Paul's audience will be noting something extremely different about the Christian ethic and how it 
infiltrates relationships and expresses itself. This is where Paul begins addressing what the power dynamic that so abuses the relationship. Where husbands naturally uh, tend to have the, 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 the strong arm of the power dynamic in uh, the relationship, but also culturally speaking, women, wives in particular, that, that, that they were property. We can say that. Um, this turns the power dynamic on its head. It is now no longer uh, okay for the husband to go forward, culturally speaking, like if it's okay if people are doing it around them to uh, disregard their spouses, disregard their wives, treat them as property. You are now the one who is going to give yourself up for her. Think about how revolutionary that is. Think about how crazy that would sound in this day and age. And I would argue with you, it sounds just as crazy today. This is not old, right? And I don't even want to say it's something new. It, I'll, I'll go back to Chesterton's quote. It is, it is something found difficult and left untried. And the world is dying to see it. And what is it? It is sacrificial love on the husband's part for his wife. We could go into length about what it was like to be married back then, and there's some good words here um, to describe what that was like. I think for time's sake, I'm gonna cut some of that out, but here's one quote. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his Ill, or legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family life were near to being extinct and fidelity was completely non-existent. This would have been the same way, uh, the same culture in Rome, no better, and even, even among the Jews, Right? In their daily prayers, they would pray and thank God that he did not make them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Suffice it to say that property was probably the best that women could do to be thought of because there's some value there in that sense. And it's against that backdrop that Paul drops verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We could stop there and that would be enough for today. Because at this point, we can say that the authority that husbands have over wives is likened to the authority what Christ had over his church as its Savior, which, as we said, is redemptive in nature. Therefore, it is not authority marked out by power or rank, but sacrifice and service. That's the change. In other words, Jesus did not use his authority to save his church by oppressing or exploiting her. He saved his bride, the church, by using his authority in a much different way, by sacrifice and service unto death. This is how the Bible undoes the power dynamic in relationships, and this is what makes it attractive and different and beautiful because it's reflecting something much bigger than themselves. It's reflecting Christ and the church. Well, Paul goes on to look at a number of things, like what's the purpose of this love? Well, the purpose of Christ giving himself for his bride is to present his church blameless, to make her holy. Um, just looking at time, that's a sermon in and of itself. But one of the things I would give you here at this point, as far as what does this mean, 
is that first note that the bride, the church, does not make herself presentable. Christ does. Thus, husbands are not the wife's savior, nor are they called to make her without spot or wrinkle. And I say that because I am surprised at how many people in, in the church in the past, the places I've worked, have, asked, have, have said to me, thinking it's, it's my job to present my wife spotless and blameless. And I would say, no, it's not. Jesus does that. Your job is to reflect the redemptive nature of that love, which is often found in husbands creating spaces in their homes and in, in the way that they love their wife that allow her to flourish. I get asked all the time, should I be reading scripture to my wife? To which I say, does she not know how to read? And we laugh at that because we are confused and there's, there's good intention behind that. I don't wanna make light of it. I don't know, maybe, maybe your wife wants you to do that, that's great. That's not what this is saying. And I would argue that what, what, what is the, the onus that's on husbands, especially in the home, is that you are the one who is reflecting the realities of this redemptive nature to your spouse, to your kids if you have it, and the way that you also understand your need for this gospel. That grace is so, you are so filled up with grace that in the way that you treat one another, in the way that you treat your kids, in the way that you think about your role in this house, it is, it is, it is the constant that points your children, if you have them, and your spouse to Jesus, the one who makes us all spotless and without blemish. But it is not the husband's duty to make his wife blameless and holy. I would also argue that in this leading, because I would say this, I would say my biggest fear as a husband and dad is not that my kids won't memorize the catechism, right? Rather, it's that my life, what will be the primary influencer of the gospel to them growing up, will reflect something other than the love of Jesus to them. That, that, that what my kids will think of when they think of Jesus is he's gone a lot, he works a lot, and sometimes he's annoyed with me. That's my biggest fear. Now, before we all despair, husbands especially, at times, right, we do reflect something other than the loveliness of Jesus, which is why the good Lord gives us tools of repentance and forgiveness. And one of the best ways that husbands lead at home, especially in the way that they reflect this redemptive authority is to confess and repent before their families. So let me ask some questions here. Husbands, when was the last time you repented towards your spouse or shared why you need Jesus with your kids if you have them? And this is, I'm not accusing anybody here. I mean, I'm passionate about this stuff and I need somebody to ask me about it for certain. But this is what the text is getting at. So when was the last time that happened? And we could even go back when we think about how we're supposed to respond to our wives and, 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 and leading uh, in the roles that we're called to lead. And I could ask you, husbands, are you present and or leading in any discussion around the house that pertains to spiritual formation for your family? Better yet, is making sure everyone is out of the house on Sunday something only the wife is doing? Or are you involved in that? Husbands, how are you inviting your wife into the discussion of spiritual formation or encouraging her leadership and the family? Just because the husband didn't come up with the idea doesn't mean it can't be implemented in the family. Husbands, how are you making tangible the wonderful graces of our Lord 
by the way you serve your wife and the way you serve your kids if you have them such that they long to willingly submit themselves to Jesus' love and care because they get glimpses of it in you first. That's the drama you're putting on for them, for me, for everybody. If the purpose of Christ's sacrificial love is to present the church as blameless, then husbands set the tone for holiness by modeling the very Christ-like love that makes themselves blameless in the first place. It is modeling grace. It is modeling mercy, tenderness, care. The way what? The way you first learned Christ. So that in the absence of oppression, in the absence of disrespect, in the absence of selfishness, but in the presence of sacrificial love and the husband's own pursuit of Christ, you do not distort the beauty or care. And instead, you lead your wife and you lead your family to the source of what they so admire and respect about you in the first place. That's what happens. We're out of time, but the husband, as Paul continues, is is not only called to give himself sacrificially, but he is called to love his wife as himself, which implies knowing her as himself. And this this, this would have been real countercultural in that day and age because husbands were never expected to think of their spouse as themselves. Right? So you see the reason for the metaphor. Right? You, you care and tend to yourself. Right? You nurture and cherish yourself. Well, your spouse, because of the oneness, right? the, the, the two becoming one union there, she's, she is you. You are her. Why would you not tend to yourself? You see his, his logic there. And this, this comes into tons of other different uh, applications you know, that um, we could make. Like, for example, husbands should be inviting their wives to consult and everything that goes on in the house. Because they're the same, okay? So um, husbands, right? Are you just thinking this is your decision to make or have you consulted with your wife? I can tell you this right now, I would be a fool not to consult my wife. Um, and probably some of you are like, yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> but, you know, all of these sort of, Paul is trying to get husbands to see, like, this is your own body in one sense. Just as much as she is yours. The, the, the two become one. Would you treat yourself any differently? But then he does one more thing, and I'll land the plane here. Is he, is he, in this word for cherish, right, it is, it's, nourishing is, is sort of external. Like, here's the body, and we get food and drink. And, and it's not enough to say to your spouse, hey, I provided you food and drink and a, and, and a house. Uh, are, are you welcome? Right, uh, and, and, and for many of us in here, it's really, you know, it could be the other way around. Um, but there's the, nerd, there's, there's the cherished part, which is to say that you don't just do these things together, but you, sh- you open yourself up to her. You share yourself with her. You let her know what's going on in here because you two are one. And that's, that's what she's drawn to as well in the relationship, Okay. And so there's this sense that, that, that the oneness is pointing to this wonderful picture of, 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 of knowing each other uh, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, and all of these ways. And the Bible calls that oneness, which is another word for intimacy. And there's something there that when that happens and the way that it happens, the roles just naturally back and forth 
back and forth, sacrificial love, coming under under the authority of, of that love, sacrificial love, respecting her husband, loving his wife. But the dance just naturally goes on. And it's all because they are filled with the Spirit. Now, I would ask you, who doesn't want that? As we get to the end of what, what men are called to and, and just trying to cut out so much here, I'll quote Bach here. He says, if we consider the amount of time spent discussing each role, the stress is not on how the wife responds, but on how the husband loves. And I would argue that if, if I drew all those things out and we went through here and we put all these things on the list, who doesn't want that? And I've yet to find anybody who doesn't. And the hunger for that is not you needing to find a spouse. Although if that turns out that way, I hope that that's there. But the hunger for that is something you have already, married or not. And that is in Jesus himself. And that's where we land this plane this morning. Women, in Christ, you have the love that you deserve. You have the love that is sacrificial love that says no matter what, right, you're mine and nothing will stop that. You have that in Christ. In Christ, you have the selflessness that sees his bride as more important than himself and does whatever it takes to make sure she feels nurtured and cherished and loved. In Christ, you have someone who sees you and and, and who you were meant to be. Men in Christ, you have that respect and that support that never wavers. That never looks at you and says, right, that's not enough. In Christ, you have the power to give yourself for another because what he did it for you. There is no greater affirmation. And so you know what happens when that affirmation fills you up. When wives and husbands are full of Christ's spirit, literally drunk on it, going back to verse 18, they put on the drama. They both begin to put on a show before each other in the watching world of Christ and his church, each giving themselves up for the other in their unique ways as one. If we are not married in this room, let's cheer on our husbands and wives here to this wonderful calling to continue to put before the watching world this drama of Christ and his church. If we're Christians here, though, may we continue to fall in love 10,000 times over again and again of our true groom, Jesus, and his true bride, the church, finding ourselves, what, caught up in that ultimate story, that ultimate drama from now and on into eternity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. Uh, We pray now that uh, you would take the seeds that have just gone out and you would mature them, grow them. There's so much to take from this text. And it's just amazing to step back and and think that that just some, some human being created this and wrote this. And it cannot be true. No husband, no wife would write this in to their own story. We are selfish people. And it's clear that as we look at this and as we see how this is really the key for how 
marriages work. But even beyond that, we see your hand everywhere in this. And we say thank you. Thank you for the roles you call us to, especially in this context in marriage and as we look next week into the roles of, of children and parents and so on and so forth. Thank you for this. And may we continue to be uh, children of yours who come back over and over again to these rich texts, uh, not just to learn more about ourselves, but to learn more about you and your love for us. As we think about wives and husbands, may we never think about them separated from your sacrificial love to your bride, your church. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.